Charlie Johnson Reads All of Proust by Amy Kreider Starring Jeff Brightman I do like my sweets. Always have. I bake cookies all the time for Card Club and Snappy Seniors. I like chocolate chip the best. And oatmeal raisin, they're good. It all started because my stomach was growling. It was four o'clock, and I said to Bonnie, Ain't this tea time in England? Let's stop at Starbucks and get us a coffee and a cookie or something. Because we'd been shopping all day. That Bonnie can shop with her sales and her coupons and her 80% off at Kohl's. She Christmas shops all year round, you see. And by Christmas, she's bought more for people than she can even remember. Anyway, it was four o'clock, too early for dinner, though it would have been fine by me to stop at the Olive Garden and eat early. So I said, let's stop at the Starbucks. And she said, I'm making pork loin for dinner. We can get some little snack, but I don't want you to spoil your dinner. Now, I can eat. I've always been able to eat, skinny as I am. I've always been able to eat pie or a big dinner, just can't put weight on, which Bonnie just hates. But there you go. So we stop at Starbucks. I'm looking for something small, though I could have gone for a big cupcake. I order a black coffee, and by the register there's a little cellophane package of a couple of cookies. I didn't take notice of what kind they were. Something with ripples, but they looked good. And I say to Bonnie, is this small enough? It won't fill me up none at all. She says fine, and she has a Tazo herbal tea. She can't have caffeine. She's never said why, but I think it's her bladder. She's too delicate to say so, but I think so. Anyway, I get my black coffee and my cookies. Now, we were with her son and his wife who were visiting, Billy and Patricia. They order lattes, of course, because they would spend four or five dollars on coffee full of milk. It probably costs Starbucks 50 cents to make. Well, that's fine if they like it. I like my coffee black, which saves me a lot of money. So we sit down and I unwrap my cookie and dip it for a second in the coffee. It's a soft, spongy cookie and soaks it up right away. Almost too mushy, so I don't dip any more of it. But I bite into this cookie and feel better since my stomach was really growling by then. And Patricia turns to me and says, Are you having your Madeline moment? I say, What? Are you having your Madeline moment? Now, Patricia is not what you call a down-home girl. Billy and Patricia are nice enough, sure. Usually real quiet, actually. I like Billy. He's okay. But sometimes I think Patricia is a little bit, I don't know, snooty. Kind of superior. She don't work. And lets her husband support her while she's writing a novel. Now, 
I can't write a story to save my life. So if she's that creative, God bless her. But, you know, it's been seven years since she quit her job to write. And I don't see her name on any bestseller list or even any book jacket yet. So I do wonder sometimes what she does all day. Anyway, it was noisy in the Starbucks, and I don't hear so well, so I'm not sure what she's saying. And I ask her, what is my Madeline moment? I might have imagined it, but I thought maybe her eyes rolled back a second, like she thought I was kind of stupid. Sometimes I feel that from her. Maybe I just imagine it. And she says, The cookie you're eating is called a Madeline. There was a French writer named Proust who wrote a book called Remembrance of Things Past. I say, oh yeah, I've heard that title. It's famous. It's a real long book, right? Again, I think her eyes roll. And she says, yes, it's a long book. And in the beginning, the main character is having a Madeline and some tea. He dips the Madeline in the tea and bites into it, and when he takes the bite and the flavor fills his mouth, suddenly his whole childhood and past life come back to him and overwhelm him with memories. And that is the start of the story. I say, well, that's interesting, and I eat my cookie, but I'm wishing I'd gotten the cupcake because I'm still hungry. And she explains, and so now, it's called your Madeline moment. Like I'm stupid, because I got it the first time. But she goes on. It doesn't have to be a Madeline. But the idea is, there's something, some flavor from your past, that when you eat it, it brings it all back. Your Madeline. Okay, I get it. So I sip my coffee and think it over, and it comes to me. And I say to her, for me, that would be fried cornmeal mush. I don't even look at her because I know she'd roll her eyes at that, but that's my childhood in a nutshell, fried cornmeal mush. That's interesting, Patricia says. Is fried cornmeal mush good? It's not good or bad, it's just what you eat, I say. Next to me, Bonnie was talking on her cell phone to someone at church about the programs. A couple of people next to us were on their laptops. Two people, together, facing each other, each with a laptop in front of them. Some music was playing over the noise. Up on the wall there was a mural, a photograph cornfields in Indiana, and I thought of how different it all was. These cell phones and Wi-Fi and all. And when I bit into my cookie, I felt like what I could taste was that fried cornmeal mush. You looked a million miles away just then, she says. Do you like to read? Maybe you should read Proust. Now, she asks me if I like to read almost as if she was asking, do you know how to read? I read now and again. 
course, I read my Bible study. And I like those Robert Parker mysteries. Or maybe a good biography or something historical, like Washington or the Civil War. Sure, I read. Of course I read. It just rubbed me the wrong way the way she asked that. So I thought, if you think you're so smart, I will read Proust. I will go on Amazon and order the book and read it all the way through. And next Christmas, when Billy and Patricia come back to visit, I will discuss Proust with her. So I go online that very night. And it turns out it's more like six books. And now they've changed the name to In Search of Lost Time. And I ordered all six books. I tried to kind of keep this from Bonnie, but the funny thing is, she never seemed to notice what I was reading because we're so busy with Card Club and Snappy Seniors and the church. She don't really pay attention. So whenever I have a few minutes, I'm reading Proust. It sure is unusual. He starts with his childhood. And the main thing I got out of it is, what a godforsaken mama's boy he is. The whole first half of the book is how he is in agony if his mother doesn't come kiss him goodnight. It's about how if their neighbor Swan comes over for dinner, that means his mother won't come up and kiss him goodnight in his room. And this goes on for at least a hundred pages. I mean, what is wrong with this fella? I liked my mama just fine, but I was no way this kind of mama's boy. We did not have that luxury in those days. We had work to do and we got on with it. Now, the fried cornmeal mush wasn't my mama's cooking. That was my grandma's on the farm. My mama was raised on a farm, and it was her burning ambition from, I think, her earliest childhood to get off it. She was bound for college. Her daddy was no way sending her, thinking, why should he spend the money on college for a girl who'd just get married and pregnant and never use it? But she was going, and nothing would keep her back. She got a 4-H scholarship to the teacher's college in Terre Haute, and off she went, just as you please. I don't think she was ever planning to marry. She was 30 by the time she met my dad. It was the Second World War, and... Dad was this pleasant, pleasing fella, and he was shipping off, and she kind of thought she'd do him a favor and marry him before he went. She said later, well, she, she never expected he'd come back. She gave him the nickname Lucky, because he was lucky to come back to a wife and son, since she was pregnant by the time he left. And he was younger, too, only twenty-five, so she called us her two boys. In summers, she'd send me to the farm. I don't think she really wanted to, but her daddy was insistent, and she thought it might be good for me, spending all my time out of doors, because I was thin and maybe a little sickly. I'd spend 
six weeks, July and half of August, under that blazing prairie sun. Now, some people who don't know better think nature is beautiful. Everywhere you go, people who spend all day indoors in front of the TV or at a computer will talk about the wonder and beauty of nature. People who wouldn't know what nature was if it bit them on the behind, because nature is not beautiful. Nature is a lot of things, but it ain't beautiful. Did you ever see a calf being born? That raw, bloody picture would send a nature lover into fits. Ever see a dog shake a rabbit to death? How about trying washing up in ice cold water? Or spend a summer in a furnace of a farmhouse that don't have air conditioning? Or watch a fire go out of control and burn a barn full of horses? Nature is beautiful? Nature is the enemy of man. That's what you learn on a farm. Day one. Proust talks about hawthorn trees. Sure, flowers are nice. They smell good. They fill the air sometimes. The scent mingling with the cloud of fireflies on a summer night when the air is heavy and still. But nature is something way beyond some flowering trees. I don't mean to say that I'm a city boy, which Proust surely was. I dig in my garden, and I love how the cherry tomatoes cluster on the vine, like red pearls. But it means killing grubs and pulling weeds, and I think these nature lovers would cry over the poor weeds like they can hear them scream when you pull them out of the ground. Proust bought his tomatoes at the market. Or his maid did. And I'm thinking, what in tarnation is this book? I have to look up every other word in the dictionary I keep by my side just to read it. It's gibberish. If he has a choice between a good plain word and a $20 word, he picks the $20 word every time. Like he don't want to be understood. So I think, what's he hiding then? Because that's what it is. These intellectuals, they hide behind all their book learning. I respect education. What I don't respect is pretense and hiding and showing off. Words have value. They should be weighed and measured. And the measure of a word is in its honesty. I'm not intimidated by any big fancy word because that is not eloquence. Eloquence is saying what you mean and meaning what you say so that no one misunderstands you and no one can turn your word against you. And it's not your goal to twist the other guy's word, neither. Just plain talking is all I ask. My father taught me that. The value of honesty and doing right. That's the thing. There's no value in some high education, degrees and fancy words. If you don't live right 
or don't know how to live right. That's all there is in life. I learned that lesson hard, that one time when I disappointed my daddy. It was a hard lesson to disappoint him, feel his anger. I was seven years old, and it was a lesson I would never forget. It happened in the fall, after the first time I came home from the farm. Some boys and I, older boys, were fixing to play a game of touch football. I was by far the youngest, but they let me play because I could run so fast. Or maybe they just wanted to be nice because I wanted so bad to play. So we got together, a team in white t-shirts and a team in their gym shirts, and we gathered, and our leader, Arthur, huddles us round and starts to whisper and look over his shoulder to make sure no one heard. Now, I think he'll give us our strategy, but he says, You all know Wallace, right? There are some nods and someone spat on the ground. I didn't know him, but Arthur pointed at this kid on the other team. A husky, blonde kid, a little fat, who was pretty strong but couldn't run fast at all. Arthur says, You know he's a queer, and we don't like queers, so when he gets the ball, we're going to give it to him, right? We'll give it to him good. I'll make sure he gets the ball. Now, I was seven years old. I did not know what queer meant. I just thought from what he said it was something bad. Something you need to be taught a lesson about. So we all agree we're going to give it to Wallace. And we all spat and shook on it. So we go into play, and at first, to give us a chance to just play and enjoy the game, Arthur lets us have a few downs. We score, and it's 7 to 0. Then Arthur gives us a signal, and we know what to do. Arthur passes the ball right to Wallace, and he catches it. I'll never forget the look of joy on Wallace's face, because he thinks this is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened in his life, that he caught that ball. His teammates are calling, Go, Wallace, go! And he runs around the outside, trying to find a break. But there's no break for Wallace, because it don't take but a minute for us to meet against him, and we pile on him. And the fists are flying, little hands punching, feet kicking him in the back, handfuls of dirt grabbed and rubbed in his hair and stuffed in his mouth. And we're pounding him until his nose is bloody and he's rolling around, trying to get away if he can. But he can't. Because we grab him by the waist and pull down his pants and someone knees him in the groin. He stops struggling and curls up and just lies there, trying to protect his face and groin. 
curled up like a turtle. That seemed to take the steam out of us a bit. And then the other team's quarterback, a, a big kid and the oldest, named Todd, has his team pulling us all off by then. We're all out of breath, and Todd kneels down by Wallace and holds him, helps him up. And Wallace could have been a little boy about it, and cried or carried on. But he just holds it in and says, I I'm all right. But I, I gotta go. And he just slowly walks away, limping at first, but a little taller with each step. And he never told on us. But Todd did right away. First thing the next morning, we were marched into the coach's office. He told us he'd called all our fathers and told him we were bullies and delinquents and we were lucky there were no charges. We were suspended from school for three days. When he told us this, I wanted to say, I'm a little kid. I didn't know better. I was in second grade. I was just going along. I didn't say anything, but I practiced this speech to tell my father when I got home. My mother picked me up from school that morning, and I said, Is Dad gonna whoop me? My grandfather had whooped me a couple of times, but not my dad. She said, I don't rightly know. So I was worried all day about it, thinking what I could say to get out of it. But my dad didn't whoop me. Not at all. When I tried to tell him my defense, he raised his hand and pulled my ear and said, Don't speak. Not one word. And then he was just cold. He didn't say another word to me for at least a week. He was just cold, colder than I have ever seen a human being, colder than the gleam in Satan's eye, like the poet said. And it was awful, terrifying, because he cut me off, like I didn't exist, like I never existed, like he never loved me. Towards the end of this, I got an A on some homework assignment. My first day, I showed it to him, hoping to get back his approval. He set down the paper like it was nothing. And he said, Son, the only thing that matters is doing right. Just do right in this life. That's all that matters. I started to cry. And he put his hand on my shoulder, 
still standing off from me. But it started to break the ice. And I knew then that that's all that matters. Just do right, you see? So I look to do right every way I can. And I tend to notice when people don't. If I hear a car horn, I turn my head, wondering who done wrong. I turn my head and look, because I'm watching. I'm watching for who is doing right in this world and who ain't. And I do my best to do right. So, about Proust. Proust started writing his big epic in 1909, and it starts with the first volume called Swan's Way. Now, what is so wonderful about this swan fella? He's a stalker is what he is, stalking and worrying this poor woman, Odette. She's just having fun with him. Maybe she isn't the most innocent of women, but he's a stalker, obsessed with her, like he's mentally imbalanced. That's all I could take away from Swan's way. Is this supposed to be a great love story, Swan's way? Do people think that? A poor fool stalking what can only be charitably called a party girl, but is really, well, kind of a whore. Pardon my language. But this book is crazy. This is great literature? A stalker and a whore? If you want a great love story, take mine. My late wife and I, we are a great all-time love story. The kind of story you never hear these days. No one cares about us old-fashioned people who know about love and duty because I did my duty with her, like any upright man would, doing right. I did my duty, and I loved her like the ocean tide, like the moon and the stars, despite her mother hating me all her days. And it's a story no one is ever going to put in a book or call great literature. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I went into the Air Force. I was stationed in Alaska from 1958 to 1962. Now that sounds a long way away from trouble, but I was 20 miles from the Russian border. You may laugh at Sarah Palin all you like, but it's no small thing to be stationed 20 miles from Russia in 1962 and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We spent our days more wide awake than I have ever been since. I met my first wife, Catherine, after I got out. I was asked to speak to the National Honor Society at my old high school and help judge a debate about the military-industrial complex, a phrase that was just coming into our vocabulary. And this girl, this young woman, spoke 
with such quiet reason and determination? Catherine. She was tall with big shoulders. She was wearing a black suit. She about did me in. There was a dance that night, and I went. She was with some guy I didn't really know well, named Spiro. I lost sight of her for a bit. And then they were playing that song. That song that lifts my feet and makes me feel like I'm floating over everybody. Unchained melody. She had broken away by herself, and I asked her to dance. In my memory, she was still wearing that black suit, though she couldn't have been. And I knew I wanted to marry her. Now, her mother was not happy about me hanging around. She did not want her daughter marrying a military man. She said military men are used to being obeyed, and she wanted her daughter to have her own mind and her own life. Now, I never rose so far that I had a lot of people obeying me, but that was how she saw it. She had big plans for her daughter, Catherine, who, by the way, was always Catherine, because her mother would never let her be called Kathy or Katie or Kate, but it had to be Catherine. Catherine was going to go to Sarah Lawrence College, which is in striking distance of New York City, and she was going to study art and literature and maybe work in some art gallery. That was her mother's dream for her. Now, when Catherine answered the telephone, she would pick it up and say, Yes? So, I had it in my mind that I would call her every morning and blurt out real quick, Will you marry me? And she would say, Yes? And then if she backed out, I could have her for breach of promise. It was a little joke between us. <laughs> oh, no. Her mother did not like me one bit bit. So I did this every morning for two or three months. And then one morning, Catherine answers, but she says, Charlie, we need to talk. Let me see you today down by the gazebo in the park. She sounds real serious, and I say, sure. So we sit in the gazebo, and in a stiff, matter-of-fact way, she says, Charlie, I'm in trouble. She says it looking straight at me, but it's like she doesn't see me. And I let it sink in. And I say, well... Who's the guy? And she says, That doesn't matter. But I'll marry you. 
if you'll still have me. And I say, so how are you in trouble with someone you ain't marrying? And she said, I didn't have a lot of choice. And I say, he forced you? She said, I don't want to say. I'm wondering who it was, but I know sometimes she was seeing Spiro, who was a scrawny little guy like a scarecrow with niblet teeth. But he was strong as a wire and had a temper a mile wide. So I feel a lot of confused feelings. And I say, well, why have you been saying no to me all this time? She's looking far away, and she says, Because it seemed like it was my fate to marry you. I felt it in my bones, and I didn't want to give in. I didn't want to give in to my fate. And I almost say, well, you gave in to him, but I did not say it. But I was angry because she wouldn't accuse him, wouldn't tell me who he was so I could kick his niblet teeth in. And I said, look me in the eye. I want you to look me in the eye. And I grabbed her arm and she pulled away wide as a sheet saying, no, that's what he said. He said, look me in the eye, and he made me look at him. And I saw those eyes gleaming like a mean dog's, and I knew I didn't have any choice, or he'd break my arm, or kill me. All my anger slid away, and I felt ashamed for it. We sat there a while, not speaking. And I thought, if I marry her now, and her having a baby in a quick eight months, I will have a mother-in-law who will hate me all my days. All my days. I said to her after a bit, there are some girls who would find a way to... And she put up her hand and said, No, I would rather die. I would rather die. I said, Okay, but what if we're miserable and we do this and... In five years, we split up because it was all too hard or too wrong. We'll just have to make it right, she said. I loved her for saying that. Because I'd been thinking I had to make it right. But it wasn't all up to me. She said, we'll have to make it right. Then she said, all I ask is that you take me away from here as soon as you can, just anywhere else. You pick, but away from here. A city, 
That might please my mom anyway. So after we were married, I took her up to Indianapolis. It's not New York, but it sure isn't Duggar, Indiana. She had a girl we named Georgian, George after my father, and Anne after her mother. And her mother did hate me all her life until she came to her blessed release. And she lived a long, long time. But it does occur to me about the two ways. In Proust, in Swan's way, he talks about these two ways that his family would walk in the evening. I can't pronounce the one that goes by Swan's house, and the other is the Germantis way, the Germantis being aristocratic nobility. And it's like the two kinds of life Catherine could have had. The simple way of being a wife and mother, ordinary, canning fruit in the summer and crocheting in the winter. And that other way of New York and art galleries and what they call the glittering society. Those were the two ways before her she could have gone. And fate took her one way, the way towards me and a simple life. But our daughter now, Georgian, has had the life her mother wanted for Catherine, so it has come around. She didn't go to Sarah Lawrence. She went to Smith and studied art history. And then she went on to the University of Chicago for a PhD. And now she works at the Art Institute, the big museum in Chicago, the modern art, stuff I do not understand. She gets all this from her grandmother. When she was born, some people said, she looks like you. Got your nose, got your chin. <laughs> but really, she looks nothing like either one of us. She doesn't look like anyone with her green eyes and her black hair that she does with purple highlights. She is totally unique. I don't know if our lack of closeness is because she's so different. Maybe it can't be helped. I don't think it's my fault. I tried. I tried and, well, you do your best. Sometimes your best ain't good enough. That's the great pain in life when you do your best by people and what can you do? So I'm reading along in these books of Proust and this author is making me angry after a while. I was almost with him in book two 
He's on vacation at the seashore, and he sees this group of girls he wants to meet. It's another obsession. The swan story is all over, and we're with what you'd call the narrator. And he meets these girls, and they play games together, and he's in love with one, except it's not real love in my book. Because it's like women are just objects to him. I see that especially in book three. It's book three where I'm starting to get mad. It's all about the Germantes, the aristocratic family, the other way than Swan's way. And I'm starting to understand this is supposed to be what you'd call satire. He's just poking fun at all these people in society. He built them all up in his mind, you see. And then he gets to start dining with them and hanging around them. And he realizes they're just fools. Now, I do not care for satire. Or sarcasm. It doesn't take any work to make fun of people. It's the lowest form of humor is what it is. Like, I don't watch any of those late-night people, Colbert and Fallon and those types, because it's just sarcasm. I like Johnny Carson. Johnny was one of us. Sure, he became rich and had his mansions, but he was one of us. He always was. So he was all right. After he left, I lost interest in those types of shows. They're just about calling everyone an idiot if you don't think exactly like they do, if you're not a member of some kind of private club. And of course, anyone who don't think like them is just some kind of moron, and then they base all their humor off of that. Well, that's not for me. I say let's bring back Jack Benny. Or Carson. Or Burns and Allen. Those people were funny. And they worked at it. They weren't about hurting people. So Proust just goes along poking his fun. Describes the Duc de Germantes with his sort of orangey blonde comb over. And I'm starting to realize this guy's number. Because... What did Proust do? What did he ever do? Yes, he wrote these books, but what else did he do? He never got married, never had kids. He never worked a day of his life, never had a job, just went to dinner parties and tea and talked to people and made fun of them afterward. That was all he ever did kind of life is that? It's no real life at all. So it starts to make me mad, this guy who never worked a day in his life, who everyone thinks was some kind of genius. Well, he's no genius to me, and I'm not afraid to say so. And these books just go on and on. And I'm 75 years old, and I'm thinking, am I going to be reading Proust for the rest of my life? I can't be reading this for the rest of my life. But 
At that point, I'm almost half done. And I believe you finish what you start. But I can't wait to tell Patricia when I see her at Christmas how unworthy I think he is of his grand reputation. I think I could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone on the merits of Proust, this superior twit who's really just too lazy to live a real life and make an honest living. And then I get into the next two volumes, and suddenly it's all the gay stuff. On and on about the gays. And I don't think it's even what you'd call enlightened or politically correct because he goes on at length about how a gay man is basically a woman. I don't have a lot of experience with gays, but I don't think many would appreciate being called the same as women. At least I don't think so, but it's all another world to me. And I try to understand. I don't care what people do. It's their business. I don't judge. God loves all us poor sinners. Every one of us. I tried to... I tried to get this across to my daughter, Georgianne. And it leaves me so much at a loss. Because... Somehow in her mind, I, I said something wrong or did something wrong. I don't know what. But it's come between us now, and I would like to know what I did. It seems like the least little thing. One wrong word, and suddenly, what? The least wrong word? And it's like you've committed some kind of crime, and you don't even know what you did. Georgian was always different. I knew that early on. Wearing black eyeliner when she was nine years old. At least she never got into all the piercings, thank God for that. She did get the one tattoo. It's on her ankle. A scorpion. Real friendly, huh? You're going to attract boyfriends with a scorpion on your ankle? I was hoping that on prom night I'd finally get an idea of what kind of boy she'd be interested in. I was looking forward to seeing her in a pretty yellow dress instead of those ripped jeans and that studded leather jacket. But she arranged to be visiting Smith that weekend for a college interview so the situation never came up. I thought, well, that's ambition. To skip prom for a college visit, that's good, I suppose. And off she went. Came back for Thanksgiving with a friend named Liza. And I thought Liza would be a good influence, because she wore skirts and pearl earrings and had that long hair. By then, Georgianne had shaved half her head with her long black bangs hanging in her eye. I didn't know what to make of that, but you have to let your kids go their own way. I know that. 
she got good grades and never got into trouble of any kind, so that's all that mattered. After her PhD, she got that job at the Art Institute in Chicago, and at least she started dressing better. Wore skirts or pantsuits, and let her hair grow back, though she does have that purple streak. But she never did seem to have any gentlemen in her life. And I wondered if she'd ever have kids, because she did seem to like kids. Did a lot of babysitting when she was a teenager, and did a great job handling even the little babies. So I was wondering how she was ever going to have kids if she never dated and went around with that scorpion on her ankle. And then she went and adopted a baby. Just like that. A boy from Ecuador named Moses. He was six months old when she got him. Apparently his parents had died and he was left in an orphanage and she ended up with him. I was worried, wondering, you know, under these circumstances, was he all right? How healthy was he? Because there could be problems. But he was a sweet, quiet baby and just looked on the world with big, adoring eyes. And I was real glad to have a grandson that I could teach how to build a bonfire or play football with. Catherine and I could never have another child after George Ann. So I never did have a son. So I was tickled pink at this. His first birthday came on the day of the Super Bowl. So we threw a combo party. Super Bowl and birthday. He was only one, so he wouldn't know the difference or that we were mainly watching the game. Catherine made cornbread, and I made my chili, and our friends came and brought a cake and jello. Everything seemed all right. We opened the baby gifts at halftime, and he made out like a bandit. Everyone wanted to spoil this beautiful little boy with his big black eyes and bubbly little laugh. So I'm in the kitchen getting a beer, and my friend Nick is in there helping himself to that cornbread. Catherine made a good, hot cornbread, slices of jalapeno in it. Nick didn't see the peppers, so he takes a big bite and chokes on the pepper for a minute and takes a swig of beer and says, Whoa, that was hotter than George Ann's wife. And he looks at me and laughs. And I look back at him, puzzled. And he says, Oh, is, is she still with that Liza? She was one hot Lizzie. <laughs> Lizzie Liza. And I realize he's a little drunk. But he sees my face and paws me with his clammy hand and says, Oh, shoot, Charlie. I didn't mean nothing. 
It's nothing these days, no how. And he stumbles back into the family room, chuckling to himself and repeating his cute little phrase, feeling like he's a comedian. I'm alone in the kitchen, and I drink my beer, and I think it over. It all makes sense, of course. I don't know if I'd always suspected it, or if I'd just kind of put it out of my mind. And it's not like I needed to know. But we never were very close. And I wanted her to know that it was okay. And I could accept it. And maybe we could be closer. So I'm in the kitchen, alone, thinking this over. When Georgianne comes in to throw away some of the paper plates. She gathers up the garbage bag, pulling it up out of the can. And I say, oh, you don't have to do that, honey. Taking the garbage is a man's job. And I only meant it like she shouldn't have to risk getting dirty and hoisting this heavy bag. She rolls her eyes and says, no comment. That's her phrase. I never did like it. It always sounds like she thinks I'm not smart enough to argue with. But I want to get past it. Get closer to her. So I take the garbage bag from her and I tie up the handles. And we're standing there. And I say to her, You know, you can tell me if you're one of those. She looks confused for a second, and then her eyes narrow, and in a furious tone, she says, That you said one of those is precisely why we will never talk about it. And she stomps off into the family room and leaves me standing there holding this bag of garbage. And what can you do? How can you do anything right? Here I am trying to be close to her, trying to accept her just as she is. And, and what happens? I somehow say one wrong word or something. I don't even know what I did. Like I was tried and convicted and I don't know the charges. And that was it. Any chance we had seemed gone. She was more distant than ever after that. And it wasn't long after that Catherine got sick and I had to take care of her. And I never did have much chance to play with Moses. And I never did teach him football. Catherine got sick. And I retired from the insurance company. Georgianne helped when she could, but I mostly took care of her on my own for a long while. She got dementia and knew me less and less. 
I kept her out of the hospital as long as I could, and finally she went into a home, and she stopped talking, and laid down and died just two months after I admitted her. It felt like admitting her was what did her in. She stopped eating and all. I had to decide whether to have them put in a feeding tube. That was a hard decision. But inside she was gone by then. She was gone. I met Bonnie a few years later and we hit it off right away. She would help out at the church and I'd drive the van for the old folks. I was already over 70, but still we call them the old folks because Bonnie and I have no problem with what you call mobility. We're almost as active as ever, though sometimes my knee bothers me and she has little ailments. But we're mostly about as good as you could expect. We have a good time with snappy seniors, while card club is more my thing with a few guys. Playing euchre twice a month. I bake cookies for that chocolate chip, since Bonnie can't have chocolate because of her caffeine, maybe bladder issue. I always tease her. Got some nice chocolate chunk cookies here. Oh yeah, you can't have none. Ha! We tease each other. That's how we flirt. We were like kids when we started dating. I was actually nervous the first time we met up at the Olive Garden. But she was so easy and sweet and kind. She had her one son, and I had George Ann. Billy and Patricia never had kids, so Bonnie was tickled I had a grandson she could get to know. By then, Moses was a tween and sprouting up real tall, which surprised all of us. So, we were together a few years by the time I started reading all this Proust, and it's like I'm being lulled into some kind of hypnotic state as I read these long, long sentences. I fall asleep, and Swan is watching Odette play the piano and the Duchess is pouring tea and insulting her rivals, and the Baron de Charlux is gaying it up all over with his powdered face. And then things split, and I'm seeing double. It's like things are in twos, what with Swan and Odette and Marcel and Albertine. There's gay and straight, and dryfusards and anti-dryfusards, 
Jews and non-Jews and Swan's way and the Germantus way. And in my dreams, there's this two of everything, the two ways. But in my life, there's one way. There's straight down the narrow path. I had to look up this whole Dreyfus affair to understand it. And I think that was a whole lot more frightening than Proust understood. The kernel of the story is a Jewish soldier named Dreyfus was accused of passing secrets to the Germans and went to prison for it. But it came to light there was a cover-up and everyone in French society was torn because the one side said, you have to support the military no matter what. And Dreyfus wasn't important. And besides, he was Jewish, which they felt meant he wasn't loyal to France. And the other side said, this was a miscarriage of justice. He was an innocent man. And this tore society in half. Now, I don't care about politicians. In my book, they're mostly all crooked. But the military is something different. I served. And I know. The whole edifice of the military is built on trust. You put your faith in your brothers in arms. You trust the command to know what they're doing all up and down the line. That trust at the heart of everything is essential. That's why this Dreyfus affair is so frightening to me. The command was rotten, and they could not be trusted. If I had been around then, I might have been torn into myself. That breakdown of trust, well, that's real frightening. You can ignore politics and keep to your path. But there has to be something that you can trust. There has to be something. So I started having these dreams about it. The night I finished Proust, Bonnie was out of town. She never had much family, but some long-lost cousin found her doing ancestry research, so they became friends. They are so much alike, even look alike. So Bonnie had driven up to Kokomo to visit with her new cousin, and I was reading along trying to get through this last book because, like I said, I'm 75 and I'll be damned if I'm going to spend the rest of my days reading Proust. Then the phone rang. It was late, but Bonnie and I are late-night people, so I knew it was her. It was around midnight, and I can hear laughter over the phone. And she says, how did you ever end up with an arrest record? What are you hiding from me? And she laughs. 
because she figures it's a good story. She and her cousin were having fun looking up public records, you see, and found me out. Yes, I had a record. It wasn't so funny to me. And I don't know what to say, but I told her we'd talk about it later. But the truth was I didn't want to tell her about it. It was just an unpleasant situation. It involved that secret I'd kept all my life. From the family, from Georgianne, from Catherine's mother. So I had to figure out what to tell Bonnie, but eventually I made up a story about drinking too much one night when I was distraught over Catherine and getting into a fight which was close enough to the truth anyway. Soon after I admitted Catherine to the home, our high school had its 50th reunion. I felt like I deserved a break, and it would be a chance to reconnect with old ties and reminisce a little. It was in the fall, and it was a beautiful, damp weekend where... You can smell the burning leaves, and the sky is a soft, misty gray. So someone got it into their head to suggest we all head out to the field and play some tag football. Enough of us were healthy enough to play, so we all said, sure. There was beer and a barbecue, and we wore t-shirts versus sweaters. And on the other team was a guy I didn't expect to see. Spiro, the guy who had forced my Catherine and got her pregnant. I hadn't seen him in almost 50 years. He's still skinny as a wire. When he saw me, he grinned with those yellow niblet teeth. I was just going to ignore him. We play a few downs, and at one point, he has the ball, and I tag him. But it's damp out, and, and the ground is soft, and we both slip, and I kind of fall into him. We fall hard, so we're dazed. He rolls onto me, and, and he's mad. He thinks I've tackled him on purpose. His breath stinks, and he leans in close. And even though he's mad, he has this queer smile on his face. And he says, You don't gotta punish me, Charlie. You got what you wanted, didn't you? You got everything because of me. You got that lovely lady and your daughter. You got everything you wanted because of me. Without me, you wouldn't have had none of it. And he commences to laughing. A dry rasp of a laugh, like the wind blowing through the corn. And something comes over me. 
a fury I never saw coming, never felt before. It's all so quick. I just grab him and start punching, punching his face as hard as I can. He's still laughing, or I think he is, and I'm smashing my fist into his nose and mouth and eye and clouding his jughead ears. If beating up Wallace that day when I was a kid was all wrong, well, this felt so right. It was only a minute, and then folks saw what was happening and dragged me off him. He was bleeding pretty good, and I chipped one of his niblet teeth. People are trying to calm me down, but I am calm. So calm. Frighteningly calm. We're just standing there. And one of us players was the local sheriff. And Spiro immediately says he's pressing charges. He tried to talk him out of it, but I spend the night in jail and pay a $500 fine. And then it was over and I put it all out of my mind. Then that night I finished Proust when Bonnie called. It all come back to me. I hang up. I read the last few pages. Lay the book on my chest. And I start crying. And it's coming back to me. I, I didn't know why I walloped Spiro. But it come to me that he was right. I got what I wanted. I got everything. And I got it all because of what he did to her. To Catherine. And Catherine had other plans. She was going to go to college and go the Germantis way. Instead, she married me went my way. And what I didn't know was whether she was just as happy. Was she happy? Was she ever happy with the way her life turned out? And I couldn't ask her. The day I beat up Spiro, she was in a home not knowing me anymore. And it was too late to ever ask her about it. To ask her if she was happy. And I could never know. I did right. I did right by her, didn't I? And when you do right, isn't happiness the reward? Was it good enough? to do right? And was it right for her? When Bonnie called, Catherine had been gone for years. And I could never ask her 
and never know. I cried alone there in bed and the book was open on my chest and I wanted to feel something close to me, something holding me. And the book was holding me as I cried and started to finally doze off late in the night. And I started to dream. There was Proust in his dove gray suit. We were standing on a cliff overlooking the ocean, the sea below us rippling like a cornfield, glinting gold in the sun. I turned my head to him, and he looked at me, his face like a black and white photo. And he put his hand on my shoulder. I was all in knots, but when he touched me, something rose in me. The pain traveled from my calves through my chest. It floated to my shoulders and oozed down my arms through my fingertips. My hands floated up in front of me and the pain all oozed out. I picked up my feet and leaned forward and there I was hovering in the air with Proust. And I gently flew over that field of deep blue water. And the sun melted into the deep blue and the stars surrounded us like a thousand hands cupping my heart. And floating there in the void, a thought entered my head, like a scent of lilies. And the thought was, you don't have to be right. You don't always have to do right. You don't even know the beginning. It's not supposed to be a test or a trial or a trap. If it don't make you free, it don't matter. These are rules you didn't make. These are judgments that only belong to God. You don't know a thing. And you never did. And you don't have to know. Let go of it all. It was never real. Only this is real. This real thing. I can't quite say what it was. Just this floating in a void. Even the stars faded. And everything was black. And at peace. I fell asleep into blackness. And I was free.
I was alone all the next day. Bonnie was still with her cousin, and it came over me in waves all day. I'd feel at peace, and then a moment of fear and doubt, and I'd shed a tear. And then the dream would come back, and I'd feel quiet again, until the quiet won out. I wanted to tell people, to tell people you don't need to worry to be right all the time. You don't have to worry all the time till you're tied up in knots. You can be free. You can find peace. But I couldn't tell them I know this because I dreamt that Marcel Proust put his hand on my shoulder. So I kept it to myself. And I don't know if any of this makes any sense. So I'm writing it all down. I'm writing it all down to George Ann, and she can read it after I'm gone and make any sense of it she can. And so, I finally finished all of Proust. By the end, you're wondering what the point of all this was. And he tells you, it leads up to him deciding to write this book, to capture time, to capture something of the essence of life, of time itself. And I got to that part, and it's eloquent and passionate. This was his mission, the purpose of his life's work. And I got to that, and I wondered, well, did he do it? Did he really capture time and achieve this big goal? Especially after the captive and hundreds of pages just obsessing over whether his girlfriend is a lesbian. I didn't think so. I didn't think this was the book he set out to write. Because he never lived life. You see, like I said before, what if he'd lived a full life, got married, had kids, held down a job 40 hours a week, and planted tomatoes, fixed a leaky faucet, kissed a skinned knee? But I thought, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something I didn't get. There was nothing for me but to start reading it over from the beginning. To see what he did with all that ambition, now that I understood where he was going with it. I had two weeks until Billy and Patricia were coming to visit again. So I started it over with Swan's Way goes a lot faster the second time. And I find myself reading some sentences over, two or three times, slowly, just for the pleasure of it. And then I think, this is all wrong. 
Bonnie has been after me for a while to take some class at the extension. Something we can take together. So I said to her, Bonnie, we're signing up for French class. She says, French? You sure you want to study French? Now, I know I'm not going to become so fluent as to read Proust in French. But I can have both copies of the book open in front of me. Maybe I can get a flavor of it. We start in February. So, Billy and Patricia come the day after Christmas. Billy needs to buy a suit for a wedding they're going to, and Bonnie wants to buy it for him for Christmas. And I say, you two go and shop for the suit. I want to have some time with Patricia. Everyone's a little surprised, especially Patricia. But I say, I have a surprise. So they go off, and Patricia has a cup of coffee at the table. And out of the fridge, I take a cold pan of cornmeal mush. And I commence to slice it off and fry it in some oil. I tell her, I'm making my madeleine. Remember about the madeleine? She don't remember, so I have to remind her. But then it comes back to her. I make the plate of fried mush. Now, by then, I am itching to discuss Proust. I have no one to talk to about this with. I can't tell my friends at Card Club and Snappy Seniors I've read all six volumes of Proust, but I'm itching to talk about this and maybe find out what I missed and get an opinion on whether Proust achieved his goal to capture time. So, I tell Patricia that I've read all of Proust, and so on. I sit across from her, and I'm waiting to hear her opinion of Proust. So she giggles and scratches her head, and she says, well, I've really only read Swan's Way. Only read Swan's Way? The first volume? What did she mean she only read Swan's Way? Why would anyone do that? And miss the whole story? Not know how Swan fades away and dies? And never find out that awful bourgeois Madame Verderin ends up becoming the Princess de Germantes? What does she mean she's only read Swan's Way? You could have knocked me over with a feather. It's like leaving the World Series game after the third inning. It's like leaving the Super Bowl before halftime. And I'm thinking... Where I come from, you finish what you start. You don't start a big project and leave it less than halfway. You finish what you start in this life. Or what's the use? And now, who am I going to talk about Proust with? 
That's the disappointment. I got no one to talk about all this with. All the ideas and drama and ambitions. So I swallow my mush. I just say, Oh, that's too bad. And she doesn't even look embarrassed. Then it occurs to me, maybe Georgianne. Maybe she would read all of Proust and talk it over with me. I call her that very night. I find myself explaining the whole situation to her. <laughs> and she laughs and says, Okay, Dad. I'll read all of Proust with you. We'll have ourselves a book club. I felt like we were really close in that moment. Meanwhile, Patricia and I are eating our mush. And maybe she is getting a little embarrassed. She says, So, tell me about your fried cornmeal mush. What does it evoke for you? Evoke. Well, I know she doesn't want the story of my life, so I don't really answer. I ask her, How did you like the mush? She says, Oh, oh, it was good. It's really polenta, isn't it? Well, you can call it polenta all you like. But that's just a fancy way of saying cornmeal mush. Like a madeleine is a fancy word for a cookie. And I always did like my sweets. Charlie Johnson Reads All of Proust, written by Amy Kreider and starring Jeff Brightman as Charlie Johnson, recorded at Mystery Street Recording Company in Chicago, Illinois. The sound engineer was Alvaro Ledesma. Unchained Melody, written by Hy Zaret and Alex North, courtesy of Unchained Melody Publishing, LLC, used with permission, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining us. To find out more about this podcast, please visit continuousdream.com.